Thanks for listening to the One Voice podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien with Nicole Braddock Bromley. Stacey Huffman is a licensed clinical social worker in Delaware State with a private practice specializing in sex offender therapy. She's also the current board president of the Mid-Atlantic Regional Chapter of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers. She brought Nicole in to speak at their 10th annual conference last month. We're delighted to have Stacy join us here today. Well, this is super fun for me because I really loved getting to meet you last month and picking your brain. And so I think this will be really good. I feel like this is going to be one of those podcasts that we do where I don't, we don't have enough time because there's so much I want to talk to you about. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, if you're cool, we'll just go ahead and get started. I don't know if you've listened to any of the other podcasts, but they're really casual. Oh, take my- I'm making her take her gum out. Hold, please. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, they're really casual. <laughs> Here you go. I love it. This is how we roll. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, before we get started, how did you feel the conference went? The end of it? And were you happy? Oh, I was. I was really happy. I think it went really well. Of course, uh, you know, it was new for me and difficult because of losing mm-hmm. um, our president. Yes. Um, and me stepping into that role sort of unexpectedly. Right. Uh, but I think that the conference went really well. Mm-hmm. And um, I did want to give you feedback about your presentation, oh. if I can. Okay. If it's good. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. So, um, you know, we have conference evaluation forms that we have the participants fill out. Yeah. And you got uh, overwhelmingly positive mm. uh, responses for mm. your presentation. And I just wanted to share a couple of them with you. Okay. Uh, just so that you kind of know how the impression that you left with the, the people that attended the conference. So if I can just read you a couple of comments that they, they wrote on their evaluation forms. Certainly. One person wrote, so inspirational. I've been considering moving away from sex offender treatment, even though I know I am good at working with this population. Nicole inspired me to reconsider, even though it's hard work. Someone else said, I previously knew of her message, but it was awesome to hear her story. And she stepped into her calling clearly. Mm. Uh, another comment was great reminder of why I do my job. And then one last one. Amazing. She's an inspiration and a motivation. She makes me proud to be female. Aww. Aww. That's precious. I thought those were some great comments. Yeah. Girl power. That's cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Always encouraging. Yes. Yeah. As and you know, I, I this was- it's hard work. So it's like any little morsel of encouragement you can get goes a long way. People don't think you need it, but you do. Absolutely. And we hope each year with the conference that it sparks people's interest in continuing to do the work because it can be really draining. And uh, so I think that's what happened. That's so good. I I remember just sitting in the hotel room thinking this is a new group for me to talk to and how do I tailor my story in a way that would reach them? And that was the biggest thing I felt my motivation was, was just to inspire those that were there to keep doing what they're doing because it really matters. And we all can't do that job. It's, you know, you and all of your coworkers are a very unique group and we need you. (laughs) 
Thank you. And we need you. <laughs> exactly. And so I really liked how you, <laughs> I really liked how you said, you know, that we have kind of the same job to do in different lanes, you know, and I think that's exactly because what motivates us is to end sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. clearly what motivates you is to end sexual violence. Right. And so we're just, we're both coming to that same mission from a different angle. Yeah, exactly. I felt like I was looking across that crowd and just thinking this is such a good marriage of missions, you know, that not one side is going to end sexual violence. We need both sides. And, you know, I can't do what you do and you might be able to do what I do, but not as good as I was kidding. (laughs) But I mean, we all need each other. And in order to get to that end point, we, we need to uh, celebrate each other in our roles. So that was neat. Thank you for bringing me to that conference and, um, you know, just letting me share in such a way that was different from what they're used to. I think that um, walking away from that, I was like, I would love to do more of these. So thanks for giving me that foot in the door. And any way that I can help, because I think that what you have to say is very important for our group. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I will help in any way I can to get you that audience again, because um, I think it's really meaningful. Well, thanks, Stacey. Well, like I said, this is a unique topic um, for our podcast, but a really good one, I think, to break down. Stacy Huffman is a licensed social worker, and um, you work both with sexual abuse survivors, but also offenders, and it's mostly offenders, correct, Stacy? Yes. Yeah. I would say about 75% of my practice mm-hmm. is offenders. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, like we mentioned, you're the board president for the Mid-Atlantic Regional Chapter of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers. And that was the conference that I met you at just last month in Maryland and just really enjoyed getting to know you and, and picking your brain. And uh, I just felt immediately like I needed you to share with all of our listeners on the One Voice podcast Um, all that, you know, so (laughs) let's try to get that into a good 45 minutes, um, and just dive into some of that. I think one of the biggest things, Stacey, that's come up for me recently, um, and just working and talking with some of my friends who are going through some really horrendous things when it comes to, um, recent sexual abuse within a family, um, it's just this topic of family reunification after sexual abuse. And I just wanted to get your feedback. You know, is there a roadmap for this? Because we see it so often tearing apart families. You know, where do they start? What's required for reunification? Just kind of where you're at with that. I'm sure it's a loaded question, but just to give an idea, especially to the survivors who are listening and a lot of them don't know where to begin. They don't want reunification or some of them really do, but they're afraid to ever trust this person. You know, where do they start? This is such a great question. And it's really very important to me because this happens quite frequently, actually, in working with both victims and offenders that they're really wanting to somehow find a way to rebuild. And, um, and, and there's so much loss when something like this happens. And so, you know, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is I don't think we really discuss situations when it happens and works really well. I wish we could kind of model and show people that uh, examples of when it does work. Mm -hmm. Um, I have had clients, I think it's a slow, 
slow process. And so there's nothing quick about getting um, families reunified. Okay. I guess one example uh, of a of a family where I think it worked really well was uh, one of my clients was uh, he sexually abused his stepdaughter when she was 14 years old. And this really fortunate situation was that she reported it immediately. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it was one incident. She reported it immediately to her mother who immediately responded, confronted him, mm. and he was uh, removed from the home. Mm. They called the police, um, and he was arrested, and he immediately entered treatment. Mm. And from that, from that moment, I mean, she was saying, I want him to get help. I don't understand why he did this, but I don't want to lose him in my life. Mm-hmm. And it took us about a year to get them into a room together. Okay. So he did about a year of therapy and she was also in therapy. Mm-hmm. And when her therapist said she was ready, we all met together. Oh, we actually, even before that, let me slow down. There was letter writing before that. Okay. And so my client would write a letter mm-hmm. to um, the victim that went to um, her therapist. Mm-hmm. And so um, then her therapist said, you know, either this letter was acceptable or it wasn't. Okay. Um, and then we revised it until it was what she could hear. I see. And yeah. So, so taking so, full responsibility you know, for the abuse, you know, being willing to commit oh, to the absolutely. therapy, you know, kind of expressing those kinds of things within a letter, even prior to any type of physical reunification of family dynamic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and actually the therapist that initiated, I would never do any reunification work if it wasn't initiated by the victim's therapist. Mm, that's good. Um, Mm-hmm. That has to happen first. Mm-hmm. I would not, yeah. um, you know, I would never approach mm-hmm. uh, the the victim in any way mm-hmm. and ask if they're interested in this kind of thing. It absolutely has to come from them. Yeah, and even Which if I were to get a call for... from the victim, I would, I would have the victim. I I would say, please, you know, let your therapist know what you're interested in and have your therapist contact me. Great. Mm. Giving the victim so full really control supported. again. All the power right. is back in the victim's hands. Yeah, that's so good. Absolutely. And so I think this is just an example, and it hasn't happened often, but it's an example where uh, they took immediate action. Mm-hmm. Uh, the offender was uh, accountable from from the very beginning, okay. from, from the time of the, actually from the confrontation. Wow. You know, he never denied a thing. Wow. Um, and then, right, and then got the help that he needed, removed himself from the home, uh-huh. you know, prior to being told he had to be removed. He, okay. he moved out and was out until, and actually he's back in the home now. And uh, so I think it's been probably two and a half years okay. from the incident at this point. And, and that mm-hmm. seems like a pretty unique case because for most of the offenders that I know of, they're not willing to take full responsibility from day one. 
you know, they immediately want to deny or hide. So do you find that to be the case for you as well in the offenders that are coming to you for treatment or are, are many of them willing to, you know, take responsibility and do what they have to do to get right? So I, I think it's kind of a mixed bag. I think that um, there are, I, I certainly have a lot of clients that come in saying, I need help. I have a problem. I hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. I absolutely do okay. have a lot of clients that say that, that come into therapy that way. Okay. Or even I've known I've had a problem for a very long time mm-hmm. and I should have gotten help sooner. But then there are other people, of course, that are court ordered to come and see me right. or are advised to come and see me by their attorneys mm-hmm. um, and are not really ready to be fully responsible for their actions. And a piece of that is a defense mechanism, you know, just like um, how denial serves victims in sort of saying this isn't happening. Mm-hmm. This can't be happening. Uh, this isn't true. I think also offenders uh, have the same denial that I I'm not that kind of guy. Sure. I can't do these kind of things. Um you know, horrible people do these kind of things and I'm not a horrible person. So I didn't do it this way. Mm. And so I think what happens is when they come to therapy and it's a safe place and they can begin to work on themselves and what really went on for them, they end up coming to a place of accepting responsibility when it's safe to do so. Mm -hmm. Well, it's good to know that they, that there is that kind of place for them. Honestly, Before meeting you and coming to that conference, I think I came in with some misconceptions, honestly, of what therapy would even look like for them. And I was encouraged to know, you know, to think, especially for the survivors I know who then offended, you know, the sexually abused to sexually abused, to see the level of compassion in the therapist, to want to dig into what happened before the offense, you know, when they were offended? That was encouraging to me. Um, but it's also encouraging for me to hear you say that once they're in that safe environment and they can really unpack their stuff, that, you know, true um, confessions happen. And I think only through that and true ownership that healing can happen. Um But I also know that sex offenders are usually highly intelligent. They're skilled in their presentation and they're able to say what everyone wants to hear, including to treatment professionals, you know, and they can fool a lot of people. So how do you know when someone in your care is truly safe or is it always a guessing game, you know? I think that's a great question that I also think is sort of complicated. I also have really low functioning um, offenders sure. that uh, don't have social skills at all. And a piece of their offending is around that they have these deficits and that maybe as an adult, they're interacting with children and they're sort of in this childlike level mm. of, of ability to communicate. And so, you know, it's not always, I think that, you know, maybe what, the public sort of sees more of are these really high profile yeah. shocking cases right. where someone is 
really very skillful at being social and where they're uh-huh. a prominent member of the community. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And that's my experience, obviously, as my abuser was very much so. And and then, too, with the Me Too movement right now, we're hearing about, you know, people in Hollywood, well-known pastors, sure. you know. So we are hearing more about that. And that probably is creating a misconception. Whereas at the same time at our conference, you know, talking with Jolene, who works with offenders who are developmentally disabled. So that was very interesting for me to hear that other side of things. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Right. And so, uh, I mean, I think part of it is the motivation for change. And I I mean, I hear you asking the question, can they be faking all of that? Mm. Well, sure. Uh, Sure sure that they can be. Uh, For the most part, I don't think that's the case. I think that, I mean, so if they're faking what they're doing, we're still not going to give them access to harm other people. Right. Yeah. You know, whether... Whether they're, mm-hmm. you know, really working, we think they're really working um, their program, you know, I can feel very confident about people making positive strides towards their goals mm-hmm. in therapy. Mm-hmm. And I'm open to that. Certainly they're presenting only one side of things. But my experience has been that for the most part, they absolutely want to make change. Mm-hmm. And there has been a lot of loss for the exposure mm-hmm. of their behavior. Sure. So, yeah. uh, right. Okay. I, did I answer your question? Yeah, and I think that's really good. I think especially for survivors who typically tune into this podcast to hear some of those things because there is a idea for many of us that even if sex offenders are going through a treatment program, when they're released, they're always going to be the same. We cannot trust because we couldn't trust them to start with. And so I think it's good to hear a little bit of a different angle on that, especially from someone who works with them every day. Right. And, you know, I, I mean, I think there's also something about levels of trust. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so do I trust that my clients, some of my clients, do I trust that they can go to uh, family functions and not harm anyone. Yes. I mean, there, there are absolutely clients that I think should be involved in family functions and um, should be reintegrated to, into their, into their social circles. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't put them in roles would, that would put them um, at risk. Like they should never babysit. They should never be in positions to, um, be in charge of youth in any capacity. Uh, So those kind of things, regardless Mm -hmm. of how successful they are Mm -hmm. uh, in their treatment program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Just the level of of trust and um, watching them walk that out, hopefully from a distance when it's in within a family and family reunification. um, Like what is, what is a sort of a common theme for families who have like sibling sexual abuse um, as far I'm as so, I'm so glad that you asked that question because this is this is really very difficult yeah because oftentimes you know when there's sibling sexual abuse we're talking about kids mm-hmm. okay kids hurting other kids and um, it's such a difficult painful process because what happens is Typically, I hear that the the victims 
obviously want the sexual abuse to stop, but they don't want to lose their sibling. Mm, And we have to be really good at this. Otherwise, I think we are going to reduce the likelihood of children reporting these incidents Mm -hmm. because what happens is they don't want their brother or sister sent away and not to see them anymore. Mm -hmm. They just really want them to stop that harmful behavior. And so I think we need to make room for that to happen. So recently, a recent case um, I I had with this this situation, um, unfortunately, the victim is now recanting because he wants his brother back. And so he's saying, I made that all up. That, Mm. That was a lie. Um, because, and because it's so painful because this is like his best friend, Yeah, his, his, his best older friend, you know, his big, yeah. his big brother. Sure. And so I think we need to be able to work with families around it, not being more pain for the victim, supporting what the victim needs and also obviously creating a safe home. And I think in this instance, we really can do that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, right now, um, there's so many people involved and the courts and the legal system are not willing to allow them contact. But I think it's it's I think it has the potential to be really detrimental because what we do know, though, is that, you know, some of this with with incest families is that now I'm wondering if something's going on in your extended family that they will be less likely to report because this child was removed from the home and the siblings are suffering. And so maybe if this happens in, you know, in their extended family, they're going to say, remember what happened. We we can't report this. This is too hard for the kids. Yeah. Right. We'll handle it ourselves. I think that's and, very true. You know, we don't want that happening. No, no. Right. We've got to set so, sort of a precedent for the rest of the family to see how it should be done. Right. And so I think we just need to help them figure out how to reestablish healthy relationships in the home. Yeah. And I absolutely believe that's possible. I do, too. I think what you said earlier, it's a slow, long road. And a lot of families aren't willing to walk through that or they don't even know where to start. So they just don't do anything and then it just leads to a ton of trauma and then probably repeated sexual abuse. Right. And of course, there's other contributing factors because sometimes the families that we're talking about have other issues going on. And so the adults in the home are abusing substances or are violent Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, so or unstable in some other way. Yeah. And so they're limited in their ability to protect the children. Mm. So where's the hope there, Stacey? Is it, is it resting on our justice system to sort of line up? I think it's in working together. Okay. It's all of us working together. That's where the hope is. Yeah. But it's going to have to begin with families being willing to submit to the legal system and counseling and all of that. And the idea of, and I think they have to believe, and the only way to do that, the only way for them to buy into that is to believe that we actually can make things better. Mm. And when people think that treatment doesn't work, yeah, 
that it's not going to help that people like this don't change, Mm -hmm. well, then they aren't going to report it Mm -hmm. because what's the point? Exactly. Yeah. And that's absolutely need to believe Mm -hmm. that we can help and then they'll let us. Well, and Stacy, I think about, I can't even imagine putting myself in your shoes and being a survivor myself. And there's no way I could do the work that you do. And I don't know your story or your journey, but I'm just thinking about how incredibly difficult it would be with that not being a very cut and dry job. And like you get to see full circle closure and the person get the medal and yay, they achieved whatever it is. And then everything's erased and they get to have this bright, beautiful future. Like you are in the trenches day to day. How in the world do you muster up the compassion that you have to do what you do? I couldn't keep doing it on an ongoing basis. Uh, I find the work to be so rewarding. And I think maybe it's because a lot of people feel that they can't do it. And for whatever reason, I really feel like I can. So I feel very privileged um, to be in the role that I'm in. Um, I come from a background. I, I started my career as a probation and parole officer in the sex crimes unit. I just so happened to sort of be placed there. Um, I was interested in being placed there also, uh, but there was an opening and I took the opening uh, very early in my career. So I had probably worked at probation and parole six months and then I moved into the sex crimes unit. And my undergraduate degree was psychology. And I was just fascinated by this and I was fascinated by criminal justice. And um, in working with offenders, I was so interested in, you know, what motivated their behavior. And I think I was thinking about this. One of the, one of the powerful moments for me, so men on probation for sex crimes are prohibited from viewing pornography, are pro- prohibited from um, going to adult bookstores yeah. or strip clubs, those kind of things. And so back then, this was like in like 98, 99, um, we would, as a, as a unit of officers, we would periodically stop at these kind of places and see if anyone on our caseload had gone into one of these places. So uh, my first experience, like going into an adult bookstore and um, I'm a probation officer. And at the time there was this um, play, you know, in the back room, there was, they called like a live dancer. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so we go back and it's one of those like booths where you'd put money in and the window comes up wow. and there's a naked girl dancing. Right. And yeah. so I had never seen anything like that. And so I were in there in this back room and I'm looking at this, the owner of the bookstore opened the window for us to see. And I saw this girl who, I mean, I guess she was 18 or 19 years old and she's, dancing topless and she skinny and she has this kind of dead look in her eyes and she's wearing socks. Okay. On her feet as she's dancing. And I'm thinking, I mean, clearly to me, I am seeing a victim and feeling so sad about this image. And then thinking there's men paying um, to see this right. and masturbating to this image. And I am knowing they're not seeing what I'm seeing. Right. I don't, I know they're not seeing what I'm seeing because 
for most of them, that would not be sexually arousing to see a cold, sick, sad girl. Right. Yeah. Um, so they were seeing something else. And I was, I want to know, yeah. <laughs> I want to know, what are you seeing? What do they and see? I thought yeah. I need, what do they say? And, and, um, and then being able to look at them and also sort of say, what is going on for you? And sort of seeing the sadness and loneliness on their end too. I see. Um, yeah. That this is what they're doing for sex. And, um, what a sad place that is. Mm. And, uh, I, I think that was like one experience of many that I said, I've got to know more about this. And I went to graduate school and got my degree in social work and, um, and then switched to doing therapy and just, wow. so being driven to sort of figure out what is going on. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been successful, you know, you've helped so many people and I think that probably has really kept you going, but you're right to have that other perspective that many of us don't have and that passion and drive to sort of um, put the puzzle together on the other side of the story. That's right. really commendable. So my clients are, you know, you ask about how do you know if they're telling the truth? Well, after they trust me and feel safe mm -hmm. and tell me their experiences, mm -hmm. uh, they're deeply wounded people. Right. And uh, are most and of I them victims that, too? I would say that they are traumatized individuals. Most of them are traumatized individuals that they have had um, adverse childhood experiences at a much higher rate than uh, non-offending mm -hmm. uh, individuals. Sure. Now, are they all sexually abused? Uh, I would say that, uh, there, you know, there's uh, probably about half of my clients were sexually abused. Okay. Uh, but more than that was that they were in domestic violent homes okay. or that they were emotionally neglected. Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, and so because of that, you know, they're detached. They have they struggle to form healthy attachments and. So that's a piece of the offending behavior. They're not really connected to others. It's such a broad topic. Right. Um, and there's so many pieces of it. And, you know, I think we use really general terms mm -hmm. uh, and they, they don't always work. So, I mean, saying something like sex crimes, it's so complex. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. or sex offender, it, mm -hmm. it's such a huge, diverse group. Yeah. You know, we try and move away from this one size fits all um, way of thinking and that really the treatment needs to be tailored to the individual mm -hmm. because they really are such a diverse group. Well, when it comes to the different, you know, types of offenders, the non-contact offenders, those, you know, who were into exhibitionism or voyeurism, and then there's the Internet crimes. I mean, are you are you covering all of those as well? Yes. Wow. <laughs> and you have to have a different yeah. treatment plan for all different types. Well, yes. And actually a different treatment plan for every individual because their contributing factors to their offending are going to be different. Uh, and so their treatment plan has to be individualized. Yes. And so um, but those 
you know, are very different. And so I think what we were talking about um, in terms of people that are offending against children, you know, is very different than maybe uh, I have a group of individuals who were doing computer offending. Mm -hmm. So either viewing illegal images or um, engaging in uh, sexual contact with minors, sexual conversations Mm -hmm. uh, with with minors. Mm Uh, online. Mm -hmm. And so I have a group that specifically is tailored to to that individual. And I I also wanted you to know that, so they're court ordered to participate in treatment. And maybe they're with me for about two years, but I have quite a lot of clients who, when we've done the work right, uh, will, the door is open for them to return whenever they need to for therapy. And I have a lot of clients that come back uh, years later. Just voluntarily. uh, Voluntarily. um, And they come back because they understand that they needed it. They need it again, or uh, something new is going on in their life and therapy was beneficial to them. And they're reaching out, which is ideally what we want to create. Sure. Is that when people recognize they're um, at risk, and not just at risk of offending, just you know, at risk in their life, mm-hmm. um, that they'll come back uh, and get help and get support, mm-hmm. and um, that in- is incredibly rewarding. That people maybe that initially entered therapy mildly resistant to it uh, years later will be reaching out on their own when they recognize they need it. And I work with a lot of people that maybe the the father was the offender. He did my program. And then while unfortunately he was in prison, you know, prior to, prior to getting into my program, he's in prison. He and his children are now without a dad while he's in prison. And the children have life struggles. And so, for example, one of my clients just brought his, um, you know, a young adult son in who is struggling with drug addiction Mm -hmm. and a piece of that was and he's aware that a piece of that was that he abandoned them essentially by being incarcerated Mm -hmm. and uh, he brought him in to get help Mm -hmm. and so I mean that's really what we're the goal is that helping these families and what happens the the aftermath of what happens well and and I'm so encouraged by that my fear is that there's not a Stacy Huffman in every county of the U.S. You know, I think there, you're. Well, there are. I'm there so are grateful really for great, you. And yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. Well, there's fabulous people doing this work. I, I appreciate that. There really are fantastic therapists doing this work, and hopefully, the people that need them find them mm-hmm. because they are out there. When we talked about before the awareness of this stuff so that people do get the help that they need and um, talked about the the misconceptions and all that and the education that's necessary, not just for survivors, but for those who may offend, where do they go? You know, I feel like no one would know where to go to get this very specific help if they haven't been caught. (laughs) And then pointed in the well, right direction. Am I wrong in that? No, you're you're absolutely right, and it's really a struggle. Um, 
I mean, you're saying about people that have not been caught. That's a huge problem because we're really, uh, it's very hard um, to get people that have not been, I mean, my first thought when you ask the question is, uh, probation and parole, the Department of Corrections, they would be able to tap people into resources. Now, people that have not gotten in trouble are probably not thinking about going that avenue. No. I mean, they could certainly because those are the people that will know how to guide them to therapists. Yeah. ATSA's website, ATSA is the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers. Yes. So it's www.atsa.com. Okay. They also... Are, they're an outstanding resource and you can go on their website and you can ask for uh, a therapist in your area. Mm. You know, that's a member of ATSA. Great. That's really good and helpful. I think for those, you know, hopefully that's not something that a lot of our listeners are, you know, thinking about, but you just don't know. And I think that's the problem. And when you don't know where to go for help, things just get worse. Right. And so oftentimes, if what was going on in the home with, uh, at the time of the offense, it really does affect the entire family. And so it would be wonderful if we were treating, like this example I said about the offender that went away to prison, I wish we had been able to treat the, the children mm-hmm. that were home without dad mm-hmm. uh, so that we could have prevented this from him, you know, getting into the, the, the drug addiction. Sure. Yeah. So oh, intervention and prevention, uh, is really where we need to focus our attention. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember having dinner with you and that other speaker from London who was amazing. What was her name? Uh, Jessica Yakely. That's right. And just speaking with both of you about porn child pornography addiction and how I think I had been misled for years and years thinking that an addiction to child pornography would eventually escalate to a point of having to abuse a child. But you and Jessica both said, no, that's not actually not a true fact. Could you explain any of that? Or is that kind of just the bottom line? It just isn't. No, no. I, I mean, I think that part of it is that pornography can be, uh, unfortunately, someone's primary sexual outlet. And uh, that that ends up kind of being how they had sex. And and it's also for them very much a fantasy, not reality. Mm. People view lots of things. People view porn, lots of things in pornography that they actually have no intention of wanting to do in real life. Mm. Uh, and I think and child pornography is the same thing. Uh, also, you know, a lot of people that I'm working with that are ex- were excessively viewing pornography have no intention of actually engaging with human, human beings. I mean, they, mm. they go to work, they go home, yeah. and they're on their computers. And so this behavior can go on for, you know, I, I just recently got a client that has been viewing pornography for 30 years and it hasn't escalated to any contact offending. Okay. And, you know, I polygraphed him on that issue just mm-hmm. to, to make sure that I'm not missing anything. Sure. But really, this is just this was the outlet. Um, okay. So when we hear the stories of the pedophile who has been sexually abusing kids, let's say it's a local teacher 
um, who's caught mm-hmm. sexually abusing kids in the school, and then they go raid his home and on his computer, hundreds or thousands of pictures of child porn. Those are sort of, are they two separate types of offenses and even addictions within this one person? Or are, is it for some of those people, they do cross over, but it's not that way always? So I think um, what, that's, it's great. I think that the thing is, and I, I'm trying to get this right, um, that a lot of individuals that view child pornography will not escalate mm-hmm. to contact offending, but that contact offenders mm-hmm. that abuse children have viewed child pornography. I see. I see. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Okay. So the reverse, there's a, a, a high likelihood of people that are sexually mm-hmm. attracted to children that they are having contact offending and also viewing child pornography. Mm-hmm. But there's certainly a large group that are just viewing child pornography and that will, will not have no intention of ever mm-hmm. escalating to contact offending. And actually, uh, you know, I mean, I think even in that group, there's a lot of diversity. So uh, they're very aware that they would never want to engage in something like that for a multitude of reasons that they're, it's very clear to them that they would be hurting children. Unfortunately, there's some cognitive distortions about viewing child pornography for them that they think they're not hurting kids. Mm. Um, and that's part of how, what we work on in treatment. Right. Yeah, that, that those children in those images are being sexually abused. Yeah. And they can't, they can't see beyond that. <laughs> and they're participating in it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Realizing that there's actually a real human and a real child behind that. That's hard for them to even grasp. Right. So, yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, some of this is so deep and probably difficult for survivors to think about. For me, it's interesting. Um, But the one thing that I really gather from it is that an offender, one offender is so diverse from the next offender and they all need very specialized treatment, a very specific, long road of therapy um, with somebody that they really trust that can meet them where they're at um, and that they obviously need to really own up to everything, you know, be truthful. I mean, it's a really long road, but it's very specific and very diverse and which means their therapy must be that way too. And um, if anything, I'm just grateful that there are people out there that are walking this road with them um, because I don't think, you know, none of us, even survivors who have studied sexual abuse for years and years can really grasp what that looks like. Um, so it's just interesting to hear your perspective, Stacy, and just, you know, your experience and all of that. So I'm so grateful for that. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate that. It, well, you know, it's really difficult. I remember I used to not be able to tell people what I do because the reaction was always so extreme. Oh, I'm sure. um, It kind of stops conversation, you know, um, like you do what? So, um, (laughs) you know, but what I, (laughs) so what I realized though um, is that I'm not doing a service to my mission if I don't tell people what I do. And so it's easier to sort of just say, oh, I'm a therapist, you know, and, you know, I can leave it at that. But when I start to tell people what I really do, I think it opens up people saying, um, you know, there's someone in my life that needs help. You know, I mean, ultimately, I think if we can have really good conversations about treating people that sexually abuse, I what I would love to do is change the climate so that people that are at risk of sexually abusing 
will get help. Oh, yeah. They'll know there's someone that they can come and talk to because I, I almost always, my clients knew they had a problem before they actually did anything. So if, mm. if we can create uh, an environment that says, you know, like, I need to go get help. I need to go talk to somebody about this mm. because I don't want to hurt anybody. Yeah. But, so it's that the primary prevention when you target those who are absolutely. vulnerable, we need to have conversations to where people know when they're vulnerable and what to do when they feel that way. You know, Nicole, you were sharing your story um, in your presentation. You were saying, you know, whenever you um, present that people afterwards come up and sort of tell like me too or mm. that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I think there's also people in your audiences that are sexual abusers. And I think they need to know that they need to get help Mm -hmm. so that they don't do it again. So a lot of people, what we do know is that sex crimes are are very Mm underreported. And so lots of people will go without ever getting help. And um, that's what I think Mm -hmm. um, perpetuates abuse. I definitely agree with that. Them not getting help. I definitely agree with that. And so in your experience, do you think it's more conversations, um, just making it more of an everyday kind of thing? Or as far as like having speakers to your school to not just talk about sexual abuse, but also to talk about vulnerabilities for offenses? What do you Absolutely. And I think we have such a stigma about offenders that it actually blocks us from recognizing when they're there or when, you know, they're in our midst. So the more we sort of say they're horrible people, the less likely we are to recognize that they're sitting with us. Well, and that's where I struggle and I need you to help me here because the misconceptions that I have about offenders, um, I think you're right, probably do perpetuate offending in some way that I'm not even aware of. But as a survivor who is now a mom... You know, I can look at Mm -hmm. everyone in my vicinity as a potential offender. And I think you should. Okay. (laughs) I think you I do too. Okay. I think you should. I absolutely do. Now one thing I do in a paranoid way. Oh, right. Well that's what's what I was. Not in a paranoid way that that isolates you and isolates your children. Yeah. To help my crazy brain come back to reality. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I often tell no. myself, Nicole, there are less offenders than there are victims. Offenders have many victims. And so when I look out and I know how many victims are around me, you know, then that makes right. me crazier in my brain thinking there's one offender for everyone. But what helps me settle right. down an inch is just knowing there's more offenders or more victims than there are offenders. So to not think that everyone out there is a potential, but I still think that, but I don't know what your thoughts are, I I guess, as far as the misconception. I I get really frustrated when we're continuously shocked when someone sexually abuses. I sort of think, why do we keep, why are we keep being shocked about this? Like, you know, so the coach that has all the kids sleep over and he molests them. Like, I don't know why we're shocked about that. They shouldn't Mm -hmm. be sleeping over there. Um, You know, (laughs) um, or, you know, the teacher that drove the kid home Mm -hmm. because they needed a ride. Like, and then we're shocked. 
that, mm-hmm. that yeah. something happened. Yeah. So I think, I think it's partly because we think bad people do this. And I, I don't think that's the case. Right. I think that people can do really good things, lots and lots of really good things, and also do bad things. And that's what's confusing. Well, and there it comes down to the education of parents, how to protect your kids, how to empower them, and not putting them in situations where someone is going to offend because they can. Right. And I think being really vocal about it as parents and sort of being open to, you know, like I I do tell people (laughs) that are working with my kids what I do, (laughs) like, you know, to sort of say like, no, I work with people who sexually abuse people. So like heads up, right. You know, um, <laughs> like I, I'm not going to be blind to that. Uh, I'm open to that adults hurt kids Yeah, and, and older kids hurt kids. Absolutely. What do you think is the most common or the biggest misconception about offenders that would perpetuate offending? Is it that, that they're monsters? I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, some of them are. Right. Well, I think I think um, <laughs> so. There are psychopaths out there, right, Stacey, there that are, you yes, would say yes, are monsters, yes. but they're not. Not everyone who is a sexual abuser is a monster. That's more of what you're trying to get across to people. Right. Right. OK. I think. Yeah. So I think the issue is that, you know, like I think we like 93 percent of abusers know their victim. And I think, you know, maybe what you're talking about might be the other, the end of the spectrum where the really violent, high risk offenders. And I think they would fit in that category, right? Um, This sort of like, I don't know if there's any helping these people, right? Those really high risk, very antisocial people. But that is not who comes to me. High risk people tend to go to jail for a long period of time. I get lower risk offenders Mm -hmm. who are in the community uh, that I think have a lot of opportunity for growth and development and can create pro-social lives, Mm. pro-social relationships. So that's what, when it comes to recidivism of offenses and sex offenders who continually, they serve time, they get out, they do it again. We can never trust these guys. To reduce that, it comes through social support. It comes through ongoing treatment. And through that, you believe that there is hope that an offender can stop. Yeah, I absolutely believe there's hope or I wouldn't I wouldn't do this. Right. Um, right. Um, but for so, a survivor who's listening and is afraid of their stepdad getting out of prison in the next five years after they've served 20 years and they feel like they did their offender didn't get any treatment or at least not enough. And they're fearful of him getting out and hurting them or hurting more kids. Um, what do you say to them to help them? look at it in a different light to find their freedom. So I would want them to be involved if they could, because I think that might calm their fears if they could be involved. So if they could be involved, even from a peripheral way, like making sure that they were in a treatment program, if that would comfort them, 
you know, making sure they knew actually the probation officers, they're going to be supervising their stepdad when they, when he gets out Yeah. or yeah. talking to his, the counselors yeah. and wanting to know, is he making change mm. and or, advocating or are you going to keep him away own. from me? Right. I completely support if victims say, I never want to see him again, then yeah. that's exactly what should happen. Okay, good. You know? Yeah. See, I think we Absolutely. have these misconceptions of how it's going to be. And it's not really like that. <laughs> when he gets no, out, it's not like no. he's just free to do whatever he wants. There's still accountability. There's people who are watching over. And there's people who care more about the victim, you know, and his or her. I think they all care more yes. about the victim. Yeah. And I think they're going to do whatever they can to create safety mm -hmm. for the victim, for the community. And honestly, I don't want the guys I work with to reoffend for themselves, too. I don't want them to make their life worse either. Exactly. I mean, the right. ultimate goal is community safety. So but I also yeah. sort of pitch that piece about that I want them to have a, a higher quality of life mm -hmm. and that I want them to experience relationships they can be proud of. And I want them to feel good about themselves so that they don't attempt to feel good about themselves by abusing their power over others. Yeah. There's like really healthy ways to feel good about yourself. Right. And I work towards helping them find those things. I, I mean, I think when you're asking for, for victims, I, I would want them to know that they, that there's people that their sole job is to create safety for them. And so you met the probation officers I work with at the conference. They go out of their way to make sure that that little girl you're talking about is safe. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. their job is to monitor that individual in the community. Mm -hmm. I think that's really reassuring to, especially the population that tunes into this podcast, just to hear some of that and to, you know, when you don't know about something, it makes you feel out of control. It makes you feel uh, uneasy and scared. Yeah, you yeah. can't trust anybody. But when you can hear from the other side, and especially from your perspective, Stacey, you know, a highly qualified, very successful person who is walking with offenders day in and day out, you know the dark thoughts, you know what they're doing, and that you can actually say, that you trust the process and you see hope. Um, I think that's really encouraging for a lot of us who have been offended. So I just appreciate Good. your voice so much. So one thing I wanted to tell you yeah. was if you wanted to know more about this, go to ATSA's website. ATSA is the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers. Yes. So it's www.atsa.com. Okay. And you can click on eight things everyone should know about sexual abuse and sexual offending. Great. And I think it really confronts some of those myths that you're talking about. I will definitely be checking that out. Oh, yeah. Same here. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. Oh, Stacy, this was really fun. Uh, I really hope that Thank our paths so cross again. Yes, I, I hope so, too. Yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate you, Nicole. And nice meeting you, Mary. And thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. In our next One Voice podcast, we'll be talking with Dr. Diane Langberg, a leading Christian psychologist for trauma survivors and clergy. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.